In each episode of the Natural Curiosity Project, Steve Shepard relates a story, an observation, or just a few minutes of calm amongst the sea of confusion that surround us. Often he interviews individuals with a wide variety of backgrounds to provide insight into the curious nature of our world. For this episode, we're turning the tables on Steve. The interviewer becomes the interviewee. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project, Steve. Thank you, Pete. It's a little bit weird to be here on this side of the microphone. <laughs> Still, glad to have you here. Thank you. Hey, you've always had a knack for teaching. I first met you years ago when I walked into a dive shop in the Bay Area to pursue my interest in scuba diving. You were not only the store manager, but also the equipment technician and the lead dive instructor. And I think you soaked the floor each night after the shop closed. <laughs> What's been your attraction to teaching? Hey, Pete, I, I want to point out that we all swept the floor and we all kind of took care of stuff in that shop. I mean, I, I seem to remember you repairing a regulator every now and again. So, uh, you know, that, that, that was a shared responsibility. Um, let, let me see if I can answer your question. I love to teach because I have this sort of overwhelming desire for people around me to understand things. It's really as simple as that. And it doesn't really matter what the subject matter is. I think it's driven by my own curiosity and this annoying tendency that I have to use the word why a lot. Um, you know, I want to know why things work the way they do or why people do the things they do. But I'm also a storyteller. I love to tell stories. I've written books about it. I teach programs on storytelling. And I think that's what makes me a little more effective as a teacher. You know, people, I believe, are wired for story. You know, we've been telling them to each other for over 40,000 years as a way to explain things going on in the world around us. I love to tell stories. And I think Frankly, that's why I love to teach. Well, I, I know being one of your students that you're a great instructor, uh, but I also found you didn't stop there. After a student of yours reaches a certain level where they could dive safely, in, in our case, uh, you moved into being more of a coach, further developing the diver's skills. Uh, it increased enjoyment in the sport, uh, having all that encouragement. And then afterwards, you became a mentor for the group of us divers that hung around the shop and pestered you uh, continuously day after day. Was it a natural progression or something you had to learn along the way? Okay, that's a really interesting question. And first of all, thanks for those kind words. It means a lot to me, Pete. Um, let me try to answer it this way. Mentorship isn't something that I take lightly. Uh, I've had some really great mentors over the years, including you, by the way. Um, at, somewhere along the way, I think I learned that you have to demonstrate leadership to be an effective mentor, if that makes sense. I mean, in my case, I don't think it developed organically. I think I modeled the behavior that I saw in other people because it worked. And then as I got older and more experienced, I kind of molded it into my own approach. Um, so mentorship to me is a lot like leadership. You know, if you believe in people and give them direction and motivation and get out of their way, they'll get the job done. It, I think it works every time. Well, I, I agree with you. You can't be a leader without being a mentor. And that's been my professional and personal experience over the years, certainly. Hey, as your career progressed, uh, you started writing books. Uh, more than 90, if my uh, count is correct, as of today. Primarily, you were focused, at least in the beginning, on technical writing and relating complex concepts, emerging technologies to someone who manages technical people uh, or someone outside that technical world uh, that you're writing about. 
um, just so that it could be more easily understood by a wider audience. It sounds like that book writing in this vein was more of a natural evolution of your instructing experiences. You know, I've never thought about it that way, but you're probably right. Uh, and it, you know, it's kind of funny that you bring that up. I mean, yes, I've written a lot of books because, frankly, I, I truly, deeply you know, love the craft of writing. It's, it's sort of my favorite creative activity. But as I think about the question, a thought occurs to me. I mean, even the most technical books that I've written are collections of stories. I mean, I've been lucky. I've had a couple of bestsellers over the years, both of them technical titles. But it occurs to me that they both begin with the story of an experience that I had in Africa or Latin America or some other corner of the world because it makes the subject matter a little more relevant and approachable. In fact, in most cases, I think the stories don't even necessarily have anything to do with the subject matter of the book, but they help to set the stage and kind of create context, if that makes sense, which then leads to understanding. So, yeah, I think you're right. One does kind of lead right into the other. Well, you also wrote a book from your own personal experiences, tied it into the cross-cultural transitions, uh, relating stories uh, based on your own experiences living in multiple multiple cultural environments. Yeah, I mean, I, I as, as many of our listeners know, I grew up in Spain, and I had the you know the pleasure of of kind of learning to live in a different culture with a different language, and you know all the things that that living in Spain were all about. And so, yeah, it taught me it taught me that uh, I guess a couple of important lessons. One. Um, different doesn't mean bad or wrong. Different just means different. In fact, probably the single best lesson that our parents uh, taught to me and my two brothers when we moved overseas, we were pretty little, I was 13, um, was, you know, we're moving from West Texas to Spain in the 1960s that was still run by Generalissimo Franco. I mean, this was a dictatorship that we were moving to. So I submit to you that these two cultures were a little bit different <laughs> than each other. But what they said to us was something that I've never forgotten. And frankly, it has served me really well throughout my career. And that is, it's not going to be good and it's not going to be bad. It's just going to be different. And so what happened was every time I experienced something new, something different, I didn't look at it as, oh boy, this is going to be bad. I looked at it as, well, this is going to be interesting. And so as a result of that, I think I was able to make the most out of that. So that book that you're talking about, Managing Cross-Cultural Transition, came about for the simple reason that I came back to the United States to go to college and I had a really hard time fitting in. And the reason I had a hard time fitting in was because I was kind of like Rip Van Winkle. I had been away from the American culture for four or five or six years. And therefore, I wasn't the same person I was when I left. I didn't dress the same way. Culturally, I wasn't the same. I ate different foods. I, I wore different clothing. I mean, everything was different. So when I tried to have conversations with my peers at college, I couldn't because I couldn't talk about the things that they'd been doing for the last four or five or six years. And so I ended up kind of retreating to the social sidelines. And when I wrote the book, one of the interesting things that I learned from talking to many, many, many former expatriates is that a lot of expats, when they come back and go into professional fields, they become teachers or journalists, writers. 
because they have this hunger to communicate across this knowledge void, if you will, or cultural void, because they understand that it's important. I mean, I'm really lucky that I live with a foot firmly planted in at least two cultures. And that gives me a very different perspective. Again, it doesn't make me any better than anybody else. It just gives me a different view of the world than a lot of people would have. And, and I think, I think, frankly, uh, you know, I couldn't put a price on the value of that. It wasn't always great. There were problems. But all in all, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so that cultural focus became pretty important. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but... It does. You know, I grew up in different parts of the country being in a military family, and um, I didn't have any international experience, but I had the same experiences that you did as a teenager moving from Colorado to Massachusetts in the late 60s. Culture shock right there. Um, but uh, yeah, that does, uh, that does answer it. Hey, you recently branched out into fiction. Many entertaining novels begin with the author saying, what if? And then they develop a story that branches off and goes any number of directions, whether it's fictional history, future history, alternative universes, the, the possibilities are really endless. Your recent novel, The Nation We Knew, veers off in a completely different direction from your previous adventure sea story in its what if uh, direction. What prompted you to write that? Uh, great question. Uh, frustration, mostly, I think. Uh, you know, as you know, as we just talked about, I've, you know, I've spent the last 40 years of my life traveling really, really extensively, you know, doing this weird job that I have. I mean, I've, you know, for the last, gosh, well, since 2000, I guess. So for the last 21 years, I've averaged anywhere from 150 to 175,000 air miles a year going to some really cool places around the world. And I, I've spent time in places that frankly, were barely countries. I mean, you know, places where people will will go, shh, you know, and hush you and then look around when you ask a question that maybe deals with something slightly controversial that to me is no big deal to ask, but there it is. And they're afraid somebody might overhear and report you for asking it. Or, you know, places where people live in just the most abject poverty, you know, squalor with open sewers running in front of their houses. But those houses sitting in the shadow of these obscenely expensive luxury high-rise apartment buildings literally right next door or places where, you know, I had cameras and microphones hidden in my hotel rooms. I've had that happen. So truthfully, a lot of these places are based on a model where the people kind of live under the thumb of a government that dictates to them how they're going to do everything. Now, the United States, let's face it, it's far from perfect. I mean, we have our share of corruption and self-serving politicians and corporations that often have too much power and, I don't know, a middle class that seems to be disappearing and lots of job losses for all kinds of reasons. But we also have a true democracy that's based on a set of, I don't know, founding documents that were written by a group of people that, frankly, I think were geniuses. They were future-focused geniuses. And that set of documents begins with one really important line. It says, we the people. You know, in this country, the government serves the people by design, not the other way around. Unlike a lot of the places where I've had the opportunity to work and to kind of see the other side, our government, for all of its faults, operates on this philosophy that says, my job as the government is to remove the roadblocks that prevent the people from being successful. But Lately, I kind of feel like we've 
strayed from that a little bit, and it bothers me because honestly, we're better than that. You know, we're a country that's based on the belief that anything's possible if you're just willing to really work hard. You know, it's easy to sit here and list all the things that are wrong with the country. You know, you know, recent events, you know, would, would, would tell us about that. But when is the last time you heard somebody say, let me tell you what's right with the country? I mean, we have problems with education and healthcare and infrastructure and, you know, job creation. It's a long list. But we also have the ability and the wherewithal to make all of that right. We're not going to make it perfect, but we can always make it better. And right now, I kind of feel like we're in a period where people have sort of thrown up their hands and said, you know what, it's good enough. Well, I believe that it's not good enough. I don't think good enough is good enough. So I wrote this book to show people what could happen if we were to collectively stop for a minute, take a breath, set ideology aside, and just think about what we'd like to create and maybe leave behind for our kids and for their kids, because we can do that. We just need the motivation. And frankly, when I wrote the story, I wrote it with the hope that the book would provide a little bit of a view of what that could look like. Well, who did you write this uh, story for? Did you have a particular reader in mind? Okay, that's a really funny question, and it makes me smile for the following reason. As you alluded to earlier, I've written a lot of books. And whenever you submit a book manuscript to a publisher for consideration, one of the things I always ask you is, who is your audience? And when you first start doing this, of course, you very quickly say, well, everybody. I mean, this is the best book ever written, right? <laughs> but that's that's not realistic, right? And it's also not true. So in this case, my audience is anybody who feels frustrated or overwhelmed a little bit by the state of affairs in the United States and the world, perhaps, and they'd like to see a change. But there's a caveat because my audience also, I hope, is anybody who is, how do I say this, sort of willing to have their mind changed about what the future could look like. Anybody who's willing to fantasize about a new future out there that works for everybody. I mean, you know, there's a reason that our currency has that line e pluribus unum from the mini one on it. If we can motivate a few people to just think about what could be rather than what is, to kind of focus on the new status quo instead of the one that's here today, I think we could actually do some really cool things as a country. Your uh, story starts with a uh, a fantasy, although it, it's actually based in uh, something that's real and potential, and that is the reversal of the Earth's magnetic poles. It has happened in the past multiple times. Uh, some Earth scientists believe we're well overdue, and by well overdue, I mean a couple hundred thousand years overdue to flop the poles again. Uh, you've taken something plausible and then extended it to explore the possible real-world effects in this what-if fantasy storyline of yours. Uh, you've obviously researched this ahead of time. W what gave you the idea to use this as the kernel around which your entire story revolves? <laughs> So this book has been in the works in my head for probably, oh, a good 10 years. And so the answer to your question sort of goes back to my earlier point about frustration serving as the catalyst for the book. For most of the last decade or so, we've, as a country, been in a state of political gridlock. 
Now, that's not unique to the United States, but, you know, it's painful and it, and it, it doesn't serve anybody. And frankly, it's gotten to the point that, you know, this blind ideology that everybody's running around with has replaced common sense. And it isn't just the politicians. It's the general population. You know, suddenly people are being judged because of the political party they belong to instead of being assessed on the basis of things that are far more important, like like do they do an important job in the community? Do they have a, a good, close-knit family? Do they read good books or write poetry? Or are they just an interesting person? None of that seems to matter in today's climate. So I needed a way that I could kind of flip a switch and get people to take a collective breath. You know, I mean, you know better than most, Pete. I live in Vermont, which is about as blue a state as you can get. But I'm originally from the American South. I'm from West Texas. And a lot of my family still lives down there. And yeah, a lot of them are way on the other side of the political spectrum from me. But doesn't mean we don't want the same things for our kids, our families, our communities, right? I love them all and I enjoy being with them because... Somehow we have this ability to talk to each other without all that ideological crap creeping into the conversation. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we have come up with a way to appreciate each other for who we are, not, you know, what club we belong to. And if more people did that instead of slapping labels on each other, I don't think we'd be experiencing this ugly divide that we currently have in the country. So, to get back to your question, I read about this Brunhes Matuyama event that happened, you referred to it, about three quarters of a million years ago when the poles flipped the last time. And literally they did. They North went to south and south went to north. Nobody knows what the impact really was on whatever species were alive at the time. But the biologist in me knows that birds and other animals that migrate annually follow the magnetic lines of force that run from pole to pole, which implies that there has to be something about their physiology that allows them to be affected by the magnetism. Now, I don't want to give too much away to those who haven't yet read the book, but somewhere along the way, as I was doing the research for this book and struggling with this catalytic impact that I could sort of leverage, and I really did a lot of research for this book, as you know, I discovered that humans, in fact, have a not very well-known physiological oddity in their heads that's related to this very thing. So I needed a way that I could cause an abrupt shift in human behavior. And there it was. And I used it. Excellent. Uh, very creative, actually. Now, you said you've been uh, forming the story in your head for about 10 years. Uh, you actually started putting pen to paper, literally, um, about a year ago. Uh, have the recent and current events uh, affected the progress of your story? Did it turn it in any particular direction or further evolve it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, let's face it. I mean, everything is motivated by current events. We all know that. Um, it's always kind of been that way. But this book, I have to say, it's... it's not an attack on politics per se. It's really quite the opposite. But I have to admit that it is kind of an attack on people who use political party affiliation as a sort of a hidey hole that they can duck into to avoid having to take part in any kind of national conversation about change or about the future or about, you know, collaborating with the other side or communicating or whatever. And it also gives them that ability to avoid having to make hard choices. I don't know. I, I have a real problem with that. So, you know, this book might be an attack on blind ideology. 
um, which we have a lot of these days, and I'm not going to apologize for that. You know, as I said earlier, I've worked in a lot of countries where government is merely a suggestion. You know, people don't live there. They exist. They survive. They get up every day and hope that they can, you know, live through one more day under their current government, which is typically just the latest in a long series of bad governments. You know, our own system, as I said earlier, is not perfect. It's got plenty of warts on it. But honestly, there was genius in the founders of this country, and I think we're actually watching that genius play out right now. So I think we owe it to them to kind of pay attention to what they had to say. It goes back to a famous statesman of decades past that said democracy was, in essence, a pretty bad form of government, except for all of the others that are out there. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we often hear people today, you know, respected writers and political scientists and so on, referring to the American experiment. And, you know, that makes me a little nervous just because we all know where a lot of experiments end up. But it is an experiment. I mean, frankly, for a, demo a true democracy to last as long as ours has is a pretty remarkable thing because, let's face it, democracy is messy business. You know, there's no there's no guidebook on how to run one. You kind of you kind of do it by blind faith and and direction and a framework and everyone sort of agrees to work within the framework and I think we've done a pretty good job of that as a nation but you know it, it's not to say that things could change down the road. I hope they don't but uh, but you know I think it I think it's worth giving it the attention it deserves. And is that the takeaway you want for the reader from your story? I think I think so. I mean I want people to walk away having enjoyed a fun read, an entertaining story. But more than that, I think I want people to walk away thinking about a future that we could actually create that would, you know, frankly serve as a model for the rest of the world. I mean, I, I want people to read this book and see the importance of things like critical thinking and healthy debate and reading and being formed by actual news. Uh, you know, I want them to reject confirmation bias, which is that tendency that we all have to only seek out the facts that that support what we you know, what we already believe. I want them to stop thinking about themselves so much and think about the greater good and what we can all do together. You know, we've got two major political parties in this country for a reason. Uh, you know, historically, their philosophies and their beliefs have balanced each other and kept them each from gaining too much power because healthy competition is a good thing. But somehow, to a very large extent, the two parties as we know them, and you and I have been around longer than we want to admit, have kind of strayed into the extreme regions of themselves, I think. And, and that's, in my mind anyway, a kind of an unhealthy and dangerous place to be. We need to get back toward the center where both parties, you know, both of the competing ideologies have equal but different voices, but they have a single unified and really, really powerful mission. And then I guess the last thing I'd say, Pete, is that I want people to be more deliberate about playing an active role in whatever change it is they believe we need to have. You know, get out there and have a conversation with somebody who thinks differently than you do. I do it all the time. In fact, as you know, there's a transcript of one of those encounters in the back of the book. And, you know, I, I, I not not to wax too eloquently here, but I think it was Gandhi that said, you know, we have to be the change that we want to see in the world. And I think this is a really good place to start. You know, I've known you, as you mentioned, a long time, over four decades now, uh, you and your family. 
you've always had a bright, positive outlook, no matter what's going on around us. Uh, you're the glass half full type, the eternal optimist. Um, we've both been around long enough to see fluctuations back and forth in our society from bright expectations to gloomy pessimism and then back again. Any change in your views? Are you still that hopeful, uh, eternal optimist? Well, first, let me clarify something, Pete. I, I am a glass half full kind of guy, as long as it's half full of single malt, as you know. So, you know, you, you, you and I share that particular disease. Um, I do tend to fall more on the optimistic side, but I'm no Pollyanna. Uh, I, I'm a realist. Um, you know, are, are the things that I describe in this book possible? Absolutely, they're possible. Are they going to take work? Yeah, because all good things take work. And I know that a lot of complexity lies between what is and what could be in any discussion. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the fantasy that I propose in the book or, or the reality of the world. But to me, that's not an acceptable reason to just accept things the way they are. To me, that's the epitome of lazy. You know, all I ask is that people take a minute and ask themselves, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, and then if you were to write this, it would be dot, dot, dot after it, and then give a little thought to the role that they could play individually to make it happen. You know, whenever I spend time with my three little grandkids, I'm always reminded that the secret to success, the secret to creating the future that we want is to be more like them. And I should probably explain that. The most common question I hear from them is why? You know, we should be asking that all the time. Why do we do it this way? Why is it best? Why don't we try something different? And I think if we did, which of course, I don't have to tell you, Pete, is a critical element of curiosity, we'd be in a very different place. How does your novel relate to a podcast centered around curiosity? Why, why the tie-in? Well, uh, the podcast is called The Natural Curiosity Project, and I started it because I wanted, a, I guess, a platform to share some of the really cool stories that I've had the honor to experience throughout all my travels over the years. You know, it's based on the belief, and you know, you you can find this on the on the website for the podcast. It's based on the belief that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. Honestly, the book came about because of insights that I sort of gathered while producing episodes of the podcast, interviewing people like you, and thinking about all the really cool things out there that humans have managed to accomplish over the centuries. I mean, you and I have had long conversations about this, Pete. Think about this for a second. We have built extraordinary medical, communications, computing, and agricultural technologies, right? We've developed spaceflight, and from that spaceflight and all the research that came from that, we've gotten all kinds of incredible capabilities. We've defeated disease. I mean, in some cases, we've absolutely wiped these diseases off the planet. We've created the most exquisite art in many, many different forms that could ever be imagined. All that... And we can't figure out how to make better roads or make healthcare more available or create a national transportation system that actually works or understand that education is the key, the heart and soul to the success kingdom and then build a system that makes it affordable and universal or just shut up and listen to each other's ideas without being afraid that our minds might get changed. I mean, look, I work in the world of telecommunications for crying out loud in 1934. Roosevelt, when he was president, signed into law the Communications Act of 1934, which validated the role 
that the telephone was in fact playing an incredibly huge and important role in modern society. And the law mandated that because of that role, telephony would be both universal and affordable. Those are his words, not mine. Well, I submit to the audience, aren't education and healthcare and state-of-the-art infrastructure just as important as that? I mean, shouldn't they both be universal and affordable? So what's stopping us? The podcast kind of celebrates, I guess, the wonder that exists in every corner of this amazing world. I mean, that was sort of how it got started. The book then describes what happens when we harness that wonder. Does that help? That does help. And, you know, we've discussed a little bit also that um, arts and sciences, arts and technology, uh, many people divide them, keep them in separate buckets, and they are more inter, uh, interactive and interlinked than ever before. Uh, they always have been. You look at someone going back to Leonardo da Vinci, an artist and a scientist. He couldn't do either without the other. That's that's exactly right. And this is a you know, this is a concept that uh, the biologist uh, E.O. Wilson calls consilience, this idea that the two are mutually interdependent and then each makes the other better. And you're absolutely right. I mean, da Vinci is a great example. And there are many, many others uh, of, of people who were scientists, but whose best friends were poets or musicians or artists of some kind. And each of them said, I am far better at what I do because of my relationship with the person who's on the other side of the, you know, the brain chasm. You got any more books up your sleeve? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, since the uh, since the zombie apocalypse started, I've actually published six books, written and published six books, and I've got three more in yeah, you know, various stages of completion. It's <laughs> it's a bad habit. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't break it. Keep it going. Thanks. I will try. Steve, it's been great having you as a guest on your own podcast. Best wishes to you on the success of your new novel, The Nation We Knew. Thank you, Pete. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Steve will return as the host of this podcast in the next episode. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Pete Mulvihill. Take care, everyone. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did... I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.